Well, our sermon this morning comes from the Gospel of Luke, and we are going to begin in verse 26, Luke chapter 8, excuse me, verse 26. I do invite you to turn in your Bibles to that uh, passage. You'll find that on page 865 in the Pew Bible in front of you. It's about, I don't know, about 15 verses. We're going to just go verse by verse. I think it'll be helpful for you to have the Word of God open in your lap as we consider what God has done through Christ. I tell you this morning, on the basis of the authority of God's Word, that since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And I delight to celebrate that with you today, what Christ has done, the great display of His power revealed to us in His holy Word that is set before us today. I invite you to feast your soul upon the revelation of Christ through Scripture. What a great joy it is to be here with you, my brothers and sisters in Christ. I appreciate your prayers over the past week or so as I was trekking through the mountains of northern Montana and beholding the great splendor in which our God has done the great work of His fingers and was great, um, a great restoration to my soul. You know, the Psalm 23 says, He restores my soul. And I was thinking of that for about a week as God certainly did that work in my heart. And yet I'm gr- greatly delighted to be here with you as we consider now the Word of God. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee, When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, What is your name? And he said, Legion. For many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these, so he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and and drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to part from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him, but Jesus said, sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Our Father, we're now thankful for this opportunity to consider your word, that you would speak to us through it, that you would teach us 
who our Lord is, that we might rejoice and delight in the power and love that is displayed in this passage, and that it might bear great fruit in our own lives, that we might not be here simply out of routine and duty, but that we might truly encounter the the one true God through His revelation by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, that we might be made more like His Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name we pray. Amen. The bestseller, The People of the Lie, written by psychiatrist M. Scott Peck, explains how this man came to believe in supernatural evil. Dr. Peck originally dismissed the idea of demonic influence until, that is, he met Charlene, who he spent much time with her in counsel and never made any progress with her. Ultimately, Dr. Peck reached the conclusion that Charlene was evil. In fact, he concluded that she was trying to destroy him. He wrote in his bestseller, Charlene's desire to make a conquest of me, to toy with me, to utterly control our relationship knew no bounds. It seemed to be a desire for power purely for its own sake. He asked her what she considered the meaning of life to be. Charlene replied that she was raised in a Christian home and she was taught to love and to glorify God, but then protested by saying, I cannot do it. There is no room for me in that. There is no room for me in that. That would be my death. I don't want to live for God. I will not. I want to live for me for my own sake. End quote. Today, I think many people will dismiss the idea of a personal supernatural evil. And even the idea of bringing it up, they they may question your minds. Perhaps you are here today. You might even question your mind today. Do Do you really believe in the demonic? Certainly isn't that a primitive belief, you might conclude. Many people conclude that, I think. They say, certainly they believed in demons, but they don't know what we know, Pastor. You know, they're, they're simple people, and they, they didn't understand how the world works, and they just attributed disease and mental illness and epilepsy, and they just all, they just all attributed to the demonic. They were naive. Now, I don't deny that many ancient people were naive, but I would categorically deny that the Bible is naive when it comes to these issues. In fact, I want you to just turn back one page to to Luke chapter 7. In fact, you may not even need to turn the page. You look in verse 21. Luke 7 verse 21. It says, In that hour he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who, uh, who were blind he bestowed sight. I want to point out to you that there in Luke 7 it differentiates here between those who have diseases and those who have plagues and those who are oppressed by the demonic. Matthew chapter 4 is even more clear. I'm going to turn there. You can if you like. And Matthew chapter 4 and verse 24 is also kind of a summary statement of the healing ministry of Jesus. But in Matthew 4 and verse 24, the Bible says, So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick. Now notice this. Those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And so once again, the Bible is differentiating, isn't it? Disease, epilepsy, paralysis, and those oppressed by demonic forces. It seems like the Bible knows there is a difference. In fact, that word epileptic there in Matthew 4, verse 14, uh, 24 is, is a hard word to translate. Sometimes it's translated as a lunatic, as an insanity, irrational behavior accompanied by, by, uh, by seizures or shaking. 
And so the Bible clearly is identifying a type of mental illness here and yet distinguishing it from that which is caused by some type of demonic oppression. Of course, I'm not the first to recognize the nuance of Scripture. Richard Baxter, the Puritan from the 1600s, preached a very famous sermon in 1670 on depression. And the title of the sermon is, What are the best preservatives against melancholy and overmuch sorrow? And he said, according to the Bible, there are four causes of depression. Biblically, we see that there is a physiological cause in which he explained the Bible prescribes nutrition, medicine, and rest. He also explained there's a moral cause to depression or despondency, guilt and shame. He says the solution to that would be confession, forgiveness, and grace. He thirdly described a mental or psychological cause to depression. When people get worn down, he said the solution to that type of depression is love and support. And fourthly, he concluded that there is an evil or demonic cause. And the solution to that type of cause would be prayer and the Word of God. But what Baxter did is he identified that it's normally just not one particular cause, but all these things become intertwined. It's, it's much more complex than, than simple. In fact, Tim Keller, in commenting on Baxter's sermon, says, if your worldview is more materialistic than the Bible, the answer to all mental illness will be to take a pill. If your worldview is more psychological than the Bible, the answer will be to find acceptance. If your worldview is more moralistic than the Bible, the answer will be to do the right thing. If your worldview is more superstitious than the Bible, the answer will be to cast out demons. I bring this up because I I, I don't want us to read an account of the demonic or the miraculous and, and conclude, well, these silly primitive people. I think if you actually carefully read the Bible, that you might come to the conclusion that we are the simple people. And they were far more sophisticated than we often are. The Bible is, in other words, is nuanced when it comes to this. It teaches that there are a number of elements, natural, mental, psychological, supernatural, that are all intertwined. Now, of course, the reason I'm even bringing this up is that we are come to the passage today, which is the, the most detailed account of Jesus' encounter with supernatural, personal evil. We've been studying, of course, in Luke chapter 8, if you remember, that Jesus began this chapter with teaching us that not only will he proclaim his word, but you must be careful how you listen to his word. That you must listen to his word in such a way that it changes you, that you begin to want to obey it. So his word is proclaimed, our response ought to be obedience. Now in the second half of Luke chapter 8, he is actually giving us three examples of what obedience to the word of God looks like. You recall from two weeks ago, we saw a hurricane obey the word of God. Today, we we cast our eyes upon an army of demons obeying Jesus' word. This all took place after their midnight sail. You note verse 26. Then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. They beached the boat there in a new country, sometimes called Gadara, on the east side of Galilee. This will be outside of Israel, interestingly enough. This will be the first time that Jesus will leave Israel and travel to a Gentile country, and it will be his last. The only time Jesus will step foot outside of Israel is in this text, and he will be there for just a matter of hours, a very quick mission trip, if you will, as Jesus goes to not God's people. These, they don't have the synagogue. They don't have the, the word of God. They, they don't have worship God. They have no messianic expectation. And here comes Jesus to these people, just as Simeon foretold back in Luke chapter 8, that he would be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. 
And there they are sailing to this Gentile land. You remember, by the way, that we concluded a couple weeks ago that they set sail perhaps to get a little break from all the, the traveling and all the exhaustive ministry, a little R&R. Well, unfortunately, it was not as relaxing as they had hoped, for the storm almost killed them. And then they were rather even more terrified of Jesus than they were of the storm. And so you could imagine rowing all night. The apostles are exhausted. They are overwhelmed. They are confused. They are terrified because God is in their boat and they just need a little bit of a break. And they beach the boat and perhaps they're, they're expecting the ladies in the grass skirts to put the lay around their neck and offer them a tropical drink of some sort. But they will find a much different welcoming party. Because while they are beaching the boat in the pre-dawn darkness, they are greeted by a bone-chilling scream. And out of the night, running towards them, is a naked, screaming demoniac, rushing them. And the other twelve, I trust, begin to run the other way, right, back in the boat. Let's go home, right? And this man comes rushing them, I believe, to attack them. I believe this because Matthew's account tells us that he was so fierce that no one can pass that way. In other words, he was a violent man. But he evidently did not realize who he was attacking, at least not initially. But when he got closer, he found out who it was. For we see in verse 28, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said in a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I invite you this morning to gaze upon the Son of the Most High God. As he works in extraordinary power, as he, in fact, uses this power to rescue him who, who looked like he was beyond rescue, beyond redemption. And we're, as we would just walk our way through this wonderful narrative, I, I trust there are a number of, of things God would teach you today. I, I trust there are warnings here for us and encouragements and exhortations. And I just want to invite you, if you can, to the best of your ability, just kind of insert yourself in this passage to, to travel back 2,000 years and become a, a follower of Jesus and gaze upon His power and His work and His love and let it teach you and mold you into His image as we consider, first of all, seeing Number one, Jesus confronts the demonic, the demoniac. Jesus confronts the demoniac. Verse 27 explains, when Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time, he had worn no clothes and he had lived in, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs. And so you notice, first of all, that this man is clearly deranged. He is naked. Therefore, he has no sense of propriety. He has no sense of shame or decency. He's isolated, isn't he? He's not living in a home. He's living among the dead. He's been cast aside, right? Uh, he's he's uh, uh, fled from civilization and living in this area that is filled with caves. He's not only deranged, but I've already mentioned he's dangerous. As Matthew said, no one could pass by because he was so fierce. I think Luke implies this in verse 29. For we read in that parenthetical comment, for many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. And so occasionally, perhaps because of the danger in which this man provided, uh, 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 they would gather men from the, from the city and they would come and capture him and they would bind him and they would chain him and they would even guard him, right? They're not there to help him. They're just there to restrain him. But somehow, some way, he was able to break the shackles and overcome the guards. 
Perhaps because of great strength that is lent to him by the host that lives within him, being driven out of town. I trust that by this time, everybody had given up on him. Right? This is the kind of guy you warn your kids about. Right? Don't go near the tombs. The, the madman of Gadara is down there. You wonder if they cried at night hearing him screech from the graveside. He was dangerous, deranged. He was also destructive. In Mark's account, it explains that always, night and day, among the tombs and in the mountains, he was crying out and cutting himself with stones. Always, night and day, harming himself, cutting himself. And there, of course, have been great speculation as to why he would do something like this. Many people have suggested it was a, maybe a futile attempt to drive out the demons. Others have, have concluded that this might have been some type of pagan worship. You remember when Elijah had that contest with the prophets of Baal? And the prophets of Baal began to call upon their false god to come and work miraculously. And what did they do? Do you remember they, they began to cut themselves in order to get Baal to work? And so maybe this is part of some demonic worship. And they're using him as this continual sacrifice. Some have suggested that the... The conclusion why he cut himself might not be so um, elaborate. It, it may be the same reason that people cut themselves today. That the emotional and spiritual pain in which they encounter is so severe that they want to mask it by inflicting physical pain upon themselves. All, all these may be true, but I think perhaps the most persuasive reason he cut himself in my mind is that it was perhaps a failed attempt to end his pain, to end his suffering. It's a failed attempt at suicide. The Bible tells us in John chapter 10 and verse 10, you know this passage, don't you? That the, the thief has come to what? To, to kill, to, to, to steal, kill, and destroy, right? And in John chapter 8, Jesus says the devil was a murderer from begin, the beginning. I think, uh, I think suicide. And, and those of you who have experienced it and know it, I would suggest to you that suicide, though, is, is, is very complicated and intertwined with a number of issues. But every suicide, there is some element of spiritual warfare taking place. And those of you who have traveled and spent time in Eagle Butte, I think will probably testify to the darkness of that area and the mass suicide and the suicide packs and so forth. I remember a number of years ago, I got a call at 1230 in the morning. And I, I was somewhat alarmed that the phone was ringing at that time. And I, I picked up the phone and it was a, uh, a woman that had prayed to receive Christ with me earlier that day. And she said to me on the phone after a long pause, I'm killing myself. And uh, I immediately had a number of emotional responses. Of course, I was deeply concerned for this woman and uncertain what to do. But I'll tell you, the most predominant response I have immediately was fear. There, there was, there was, and I'm not really into this, and I feel the darkness type of thing, but, but I immediately felt that there was something wrong going on. There was something evil going on. And so I immediately said, oh, Leger, the phone's for you. Right? And literally, I handed her the phone, you know, woman counseling woman. I thought that would be much better. And I prayed for her, and she actually was in the sanctuary of our building, and we were able to come and take her to the hospital when we find out where she was. I think there's something evil going on in that. I think this man is clearly he's overcome by these demons, is, is destroying his own body. And I mention all this to you because the Scripture, I think, wants to warn us of the reality or the presence of our enemy. These demons clearly have massive control over this man, don't they? I mean, some would suggest he's possessed, though the Bible doesn't use that term. It more implies he's been dominated by him. And he's so dominated by him that the, the demon has control over his body, can even utilize his voice. 
And some people look at an example like this and say, well, why doesn't it happen today? You know, we see things like this in the Bible. And if we're supposed to believe it, why don't we see it today? And to be honest, I'm not quite sure. Uh, I wonder if there are other ways in which our enemy can, can attack us in the West. I think there are perhaps the idols of affluence and gain are a much easier uh, way to lead us astray. The Bible does say in 2 Corinthians that he masquerades as an angel of light. I also to tell you when you go into the developing world, you will find that they are much more attuned to spiritual realities that oppose them. Some of you have traveled to these places, become immediately aware that these people are much more in tune with spiritual opposition. I, do, I would mention to you, if you wonder, you say, well, I'm not sure I believe this because I don't see this today. I would uh, let you know that, that though you, you certainly you don't see it today like you see it in Scripture, but you never saw it anywhere in Scripture except during the life of Christ. Do you know that? That there's only one example of demonic domination after Jesus ascends to heaven. It's in Acts 16 in Philippi. And there's only one example of demonic domination in all of the Old Testament. And even that's not kind of dubious. That would be the case of, of Saul, the king of Israel. In fact, I, it is interesting to know that, that Israel, it, despite its massive ancient literature, doesn't have a single incantation, ritual, or artifact in which they would use to oppose spiritual forces of evil. What's interesting about that is that they are the perhaps the only ancient culture that does not have such incantations. That every culture around them, almost every primitive culture, would have some way in which to fight off the demonic. I was backpacking through the island of Tanna preaching to unreached villages years ago and we would walk through taboo places where the spirits lived and we were unallowed to look back or speak anybody's name at that time. I've traveled to Azerbaijan and they would hang uh, cough, uh, teapots above their doors or to ward off the, the demonic and, and constantly speaking of the evil eye. Cultures around this world understand that there is a, these demonic forces. In fact, there are, you could go and find cemeteries. We have unearthed cemeteries where we have found ancient people who have um, drilled, have dr- holes drilled in their heads in order to let the demons out going through very uh, serious surgery they would actually wear the piece the, the bone fragment around their neck if they survived the surgery I bring all this up because it's fascinating to me that Israel has none of this none and I wonder I'm speculating here but I wonder if it's just because God was protecting them that God had shielded his people from this But here comes Christ and he brings the kingdom of God with him and Satan is rising up clearly against it. There is an upsurge of evil when Christ walks upon this earth. But I would suggest to you today that that evil continues. The war continues, even if it does so by different means. And I think you and I should learn from this passage that we should beware of the reality of our enemy we may look at this man and feel no warning for ourselves because we certainly have not experienced this type of opposition. And if we are in Christ, we certainly will not. But I will tell you that Scripture tells us that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil. The Bible says in 1 Timothy that if you're proud, you will fall into the trap of the devil. It says in the book of Ephesians, if you are angry or you are bitter, you, Christian, will give the devil a foothold in your life. You should therefore be warned today that if you give yourself to, to, to arrogance and bitterness and selfishness and, uh, and an unwilling to forgive, you open yourself to the influence of your enemy in your life. And I have no doubt in my mind that people who have 
persistent greed or anger or depression or dealing with addictions are fighting a very powerful war. There are, of course, psychological and chemical and mental components in this. But the demonic will exploit those forces and aggravate and intertwine them all, creating a dungeon that is deep and massively complex from which we try to emerge. Beware that we have an enemy. This man certainly was attacked by him and was so for a long time. Did you see that in verse 27, I believe it was, that he had been this way a, a long time, Luke tells us. I don't know. That seems more than months to me. That seems like it must have been years, make, making me wonder what was life like him before this happened to him. Clearly, he had a mother and a father. Perhaps he had a wife. Perhaps he had children. I mean, it wasn't always like this, but somehow, some way, someday he gave his enemy a foothold in his life and it, it grew worse every day until the man who he was totally disappeared and a new deranged person emerged. One commentator puts it this way. This poor naked man was a mass of bleeding lacerations, scabs, and affections. Wild, naked, unkept, and ill. And as a result, all were against him. In his lucid moments, he realized how repulsive, unloved, and unwelcome he was. Living in a constant state of delirium and pain, he tried again and again to end his unbearable life in death. A more miserable existence could hardly be imagined. If anyone seemed beyond help, therefore, it is this man, isn't it? Anyone seem unreachable as the crazy naked man in the cemetery? Yet if Satan seeks to destroy... Jesus Christ comes to save. And so secondly, consider with me scene number two, that Jesus delivers the enslaved. This man rushing towards Jesus, assuming him to be another hapless victim, until that is verse 28, as we see, when he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. Notice he falls at Jesus' feet. I trust he was not used to falling before many. Others found him unboundable, but when he recognizes Jesus, he simply falls down prostrate before him. He confesses Jesus, doesn't he? He confesses him as the son of the most high God. It's interesting to me that all the demons seem to be aware of who Jesus is far better than his disciples and even his apostles. They know him, but they don't love him. They are aware of who he is but they are not committed to Him. You see, it is not enough, therefore, to know who Christ is. It is not enough to have right doctrine. He is to be loved as your God. And so my great hope today is that there is no one here that says, Oh, I know Jesus. I know He is is the Son of the Most High God, and you would leave this room with no love for Him in your heart and no desire to follow Him and to bring Him glory. May that not be true in your life. In fact, I find it fascinating to me that there is no offer of salvation for this demon or any demons. The demon does not come to Jesus and say, save me. He does not come to the G- Jesus and say, forgive me. There's no offer of redemption. But for everyone here in this room, the offer stands. Anyone can be redeemed if they would place their faith in Christ. Salvation is possible for you, my friend, if you would bow your knee to King Jesus and confess your faith in Him who has died and rose from the dead, surrendering your life to Him. You can be saved. All you have to do is call out, Save me! I believe! I trust! I repent! I submit my life to you! Save me! But this demon has no prayer like that. But he does have a request, doesn't he? You see that in verse 28? 
don't torment me. Right? Crying out, what do you want with me, he says. Begging him, Luke says, not to torment him, which is somewhat ironic because what has this demon been doing to this man for all these years? But tormenting him. And now he's trembling at the power of Jesus. He's terrified of Jesus. What are you doing here, he says. What do you want with me, he says. I find that interesting. It gives us a glimpse into a little nugget of theology that this demon clearly does not know the future. He clearly cannot read minds. He's unaware of what Jesus' plan is, why he is here. In fact, Jesus actually begins to have a conversation with him. We expect Jesus to silence him just as he does every other demonic encounter. But there is no command to be quiet here. He actually allows him to speak freely. He even asks him his name, as you see in verse 30. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? Perhaps he's asking the man what his name is, but the demons would answer, and their answer is somewhat chilling as we read on. And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. A legion in this day was uh, a military squadron numbering 6,000 troops. So in a sense, this man is saying, my name is 6,000. Call me battalion, because there is a battalion within me. Therefore, Jesus is not confronting one demon, but thousands. A host of evil spirits are peering at the Son of God through this poor man's eyes. And and the war now is on, isn't it? Right? Jesus against thousands. Let the epic battle commence. As we see in verse 31, it's not much of a battle. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Right? They surrender before the fight even began. Once again, they are begging Jesus. In verse 28, begging Jesus not to torment them. Here in verse 31, they tell us what that torment is as they beg Jesus not to send them into the abyss, the, uh, the abusus, the, the unending, the no bottom, the unending doom. We might call it, as Scripture does elsewhere, hell. And I would tell you today, as we look at this passage, that we ought to beware of the terror of hell. These demons know this place. They seem to be far more familiar with it than us. They are terrified of it. I mention that because today we seem to be awfully casual and flippant about hell. People say, I want to go to hell. That's where the party is. That's where my friends will be. There is nothing like that here. These demonic beings know hell far more than you and I do, and they are terrified of it. They are begging Christ not to send them there. How horrific must it therefore be if they beg for this? I understand that many people in our day don't believe in hell. But let's be clear, these demons certainly do. Jesus certainly does. And I do as well. I think many here do. And I would tell you with great love and compassion in my heart that if you do not bow your knee to King Jesus, if you do not place your faith in this God, the only true God, you too will spend eternity in hell. It will be a place of unending torment. A place of fire, a place of weeping, a place of gnashing of teeth. 
And I believe, friend, that Christ has brought you into this room today so that you can avoid this destiny. In fact, the Bible says in Colossians 2 that Jesus took sin and, and grabbed it in His hand and it was pinned to the cross, paying that debt. All the debt for our sin He has paid. And in doing so, He has defeated the devil, providing a way out. I found the way out. His name is Jesus. And if you would come to Him, you too might find that way out. Satan would take you to the abyss. Jesus would take you into eternal life with Him if you would simply give your life to Him. These, Jesus, these demons are begging Him. Don't send us there. They, in fact, they even offer an alternative, as you see in verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged Him to let them enter these. So they see these herd of pigs, and evidently anything is better than the abyss. And so they, they asked to go into this large herd of swine nearby. And you know, it's what Jesus does. Read on in verse 32. So He gave them permission. He does. They're, evidently their day has not come yet. But this man's deliverance has, hasn't it? He, in sending them out, deliberates this man who was enslaved. Interestingly enough, in verse 33, then the, the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. And so they immediately rushed to their death, and, and we're not quite sure why. why. Why would they kill themselves? Well, perhaps because they were trying to kill this man all this long and they found his will to be somewhat stubborn, but the pigs were much easier, perhaps. He had a, and they rushed to their death. They are not in them long. I do find it also interesting that, that evidently animals can be dominated by the demonic, which explains cats. Um, <laughs> of course... Uh, uh, we, but many people have, are troubled by this, aren't they? They say, well, wait a second. Um, why... why this is a waste, right? I mean, it's 2,000. Aren't animals' lives valuable? I mean, why, why send them into these pigs and they're going to immediately kill themselves? Well, I, I would suggest to you that at least one thing that Jesus is doing is he's showing how much more value he places upon human life. Now, I believe God cares for all creation. I think we ought to care for all creation. I think we are made stewards of creation. We ought to leave creation better. We ought not to rob it and, and abuse it. And yet it is very clear to me that this man's life is far more valuable to Jesus than even 2,000 pigs. I would also, um, or at least some have speculated, and I'm not sure I agree with this, that this is perhaps a judgment on sinful work, that pigs were unclean animals. But as I already mentioned, he's not in Israel anymore, so I'm not sure it's a sin to be raising pigs in this place. Some have suggested that this is a way to honor these pigs. Right? After all, they're going to die anyways, aren't they? And, and, and these pigs live for the glory of God, right? They are the most famous swine in history. Right? They gave their life up to show the power of Jesus Christ. But I wonder if the reason Jesus does this is a demonstration of the restoration in which he has provided this man. Has he not given a clear example to this man and to the town and to the disciples that he's now freed as he watches what happens to these unseen spirits? I think these pigs were this essential part to demonstrate the full extent of the miracle in which Jesus has just performed. Can you imagine this man's assurance as he's now in a lucid mind, perhaps for the first time in years, watching these pigs rush to their death? He must be concluding, I'm free. I'm truly free. They're gone. What a demonstration of the power of Jesus. This, this whole episode shows that, that though these demons are powerful, before all men, they are powerless. Before Jesus, they, are, they beg him, not once, not twice, but three times. 
I, I would encourage you, therefore, to rest in Jesus' power, my brothers and sisters in Christ. You notice there's no struggle there. Once again, Jesus is not saying, okay, everybody back up. I got this under control. He's not rolling up his sleeves. He's not sweating in order to, to fight this battle. This, he deals with these 6,000 demons like he deals with a hurricane, with just simply a word. He's not even praying. He doesn't call upon a higher power because he is the higher power. And he just sends them away. They, they are powerful. Man cannot stop them. They hate Jesus. And they must do exactly what he says. They cannot even enter the swine without his permission. And so I tell you, yes, we face an enemy, but he is an enemy completely limited by the sovereign power of our God. The devil may be a lion, but he is a lion on a leash in the hand of Jesus. Rest in his power. Be encouraged. Let, let fear be forsaken. I mean, why would, in light of this truth, why would we worry about anything? Why would you be anxious about anything? Why would you ever wonder, I hope it all works out in the end? I would encourage you, if you ever feel anxiety rising in your heart, flee to this passage and, and others like it. In fact, if you, you know, you realize why the devils, the demons fear Jesus? It's because they believe in Jesus. Stay with me for a moment. They, they believe in Jesus' power and therefore fear Him. We're, we're the opposite. We fear because we don't believe in Jesus' power. And therefore, if our faith was as strong as the demons, I'd imagine we'd never be anxious again. If we believe what they believe, we would never fear again. If, if we believe like they do, that the Son of God has power over disaster and demons and, 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 and disease and death, if we believe that nothing can come on us apart from His sovereign will and that He is committed to us, that He is working for our good, if we believe that our security is not our home or our job or the economy, but that our security is based on the one that has all power and that He loves us, if we believe like that, we would never fear again. Christian, I tell you, you have nothing to fear. God has all power all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me and he is fully committed to you he has shown his commitment by dying on the cross for you if God did not therefore spare his own son but gave him up for us how will he not therefore give us all things in Christ Jesus therefore trust in him rest in him in the power that Jesus will exercise on your behalf Well, lastly, let's turn to scene three. Jesus commissions the restored. He commissions the restored. Verse 44, we pick up the story reading, When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it to the city and in the country. Then the people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting at the feet of Jesus and clothed in his right mind. So the commotion is uh, clear here. It's not every day a lunatic finds religion. And, and pigs commit mass suicide. And so um, the city, the country, they're all coming out. School's closing. The shops are being locked up. And everybody's rushing to the shore. And they are clearly not prepared for what they find. For they see this man with this complete reversal of life. After all, he is sitting, no longer roaming among the tombs. He is at Jesus' feet, not alienated and isolated. He is clothed, thankfully, no longer naked. He is in his right mind. He is no longer howling and crying out. 
And not just before he was in agony, and now we find him happy in the presence of Jesus. And the villagers must ask, well, where's the madman? And the answer is he's right there. The, the man who used to run around naked scaring kids is now in Bible college as he sits at Jesus' feet. And we think, well, this is just wonderful for him. What an extraordinary day for him. But I, I would suggest to you, Christian, that what Jesus has done for him is, is not fundamentally different than what he has done for you. I understand the details I trust are different. And yet, uh, Jesus makes people new, doesn't he? If we are in Christ, if anyone's in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Behold, the, behold, the old is gone, the new has come. This is what he's done for you. You, you ought to look in this picture and, and find great delight in your salvation because this is very much your story. You too, Christian, have been free from sin. You have been covered with his righteousness. He has made you whole. J.C. Ryle pointed out some 200 years ago, commenting on this passage, striking and miraculous as this cure was, it is not really more wonderful than every case of conversion to God. Never is a man in his right mind till he is converted, of in his right place till he sits by faith at the feet of Jesus, or rightly clothed till he has put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Have we ever considered what real conversion to God is? It is nothing else but the miraculous release of the captive, the miraculous restoration of a man to his right mind, the miraculous deliverance of a soul from the devil. See, this is what's happened to us. This is a picture of what God has done for every one of us who have surrendered our life to Him. This man sitting, dressed, taking notes. He's smiling, laughing, rejoicing, grateful, devoted eyes upon Jesus. And, and everybody says, well, what's happened to Him? Well, He met Jesus. And this is what Jesus does. Jesus changes people. Jesus casts away the old and Jesus brings the new. What Jesus has done for this man, saving him from sin and Satan, he has done for me, he has done for you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, and he will do so for anyone in this room if you will simply surrender your life to him. This is what he does. In fact, I would look at this passage, and I don't know if you, you have someone in your heart, someone close to you that you think is just so far gone. I mean, they're just so far away from Jesus that... There's no hope for them. I trust that whoever you might be imagining, even at this moment, is not farther than this man was. There was no one beyond his reach. There's no one beyond redemption. Pray in hope that Christ might work as he has done in this man's life. Of course, not all are celebrating this. You notice the town's reaction there in verse, at the end of verse 35. It says, and they were afraid. Verse 36 says, And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people in the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So they're afraid, verse 35. They're seized with great fear, verse 37, leaving us to ask, what are they afraid of? Certainly not the demoniac. Seems to me they're afraid of Jesus. Just as the apostles were initially afraid of the storm, but became much more terrified of the calm and the one who brought it, now these individuals are afraid of this man who demonstrates this great power. They've never been able to bring this man under control, and Jesus did with the word and brought him to a clear and lucid state, and they are intimidated by that. I moreover trust, as Mark tells us, that they are not happy with their financial loss. I mean, 2,000 pigs. I can't help myself but saying that's a lot of bacon, right? right? Almost like if you send 2,000 
demons into a used car lot or something and 2,000 cars rushed out into the sea. That's a big, big impact. Someone in that town or some group in that town lost a lot of money that day. And so rather than rejoicing, they actually ask Jesus to leave. Verse 37 says, Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them. Leave us. Go away. What does it profit a man to gain wealth or success or even the whole world if he would forfeit his own soul? Beware of rejecting Jesus. Beware of saying to Jesus, go away. When Jesus lands upon the shore of your life, maybe he's even doing so today and the Holy Spirit is speaking to you and calling you to the God who has made you, the God who will redeem you. It is very dangerous to say, go away. Because he might just do it. He does so here as we read the end of verse 37. So he got into the boat and returned. And he never came back. See, these individuals are not running around naked, are they? They're not cutting themselves with stones. But I would suggest to you that they are every bit ensnared. That this man is now freed, but they remain enslaved. In fact, when I was doing my research for this this message, I I don't know how I came across this, but I came across a, a book entitled The Handbook for Travelers in Palestine and Syria, dated 1923. So it's a, it's a travel book, 90 years old. And I looked up the, the place of Gadara, the garrisons. And, and this book says, I'll just quote it, perhaps the most interesting remains of Gadara are its tombs, which lie on the side of the hill. They are excavated in limestone rock and consist of chambers of various dimensions. Some of the doors are slabs of stone which can still be opened and shut with ease. And then it gives a warning in the, in the Traveler's Guide. The present inhabitants are troglodytes dwelling in the tombs and are occasionally dangerous to the solitary traveler. Now, I'm clearly speculating here, but I, I wonder... If these people 1,900 years later are not simply the descendants of those who said long ago to the Messiah when he stood upon their shore, go away. Depart from us. How many people have said that to Jesus? Go away. How many churches have said that to Jesus? Go away. And he does at times, leaving behind dead churches and dead lives. Of course, all did not ask him to leave, as we see in verse 38. The man from whom the demons had gone out begged that he might be with him. Uh, and, and, but Jesus sent him away. So this, there's more begging. I don't know if you noticed, a lot of begging in this story, right? The demon begs three times. The villagers beg him to leave. And this man says, no, I, I, I'm begging. I want to come with you. Will you let me get on the boat and I'll go with you? In fact, the verb tense is a continual begging. Please, please, please. Kind of like your kids. Can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Can I go? Right? I, I want to go with you. Right, I never experienced such love. I never experienced such power. I want to, I want to be with you. And Jesus says to him there in verse 38, no. No, you cannot follow me. You cannot come with me. In fact, verse 39, he gives him alternative instructions saying, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. Go home and tell them how I've changed you. I need you to stay here. I need you to tell people about me. And I wonder if he thought, no. I, They know me. They know what I've done. 
They know that I don't want to go. I just want to be with you and, and I just want to be with Christians. I, I don't want to go into the world. But Jesus says, you have a mission now. I need you to stay here. You need to be my witness. You need to tell of my mercy. You see, Jesus may be leaving, but he's, but his presence remains. In fact, I wonder if this is the very reason Jesus came to save this man. Right? He just sails across the sea and he gets on shore. He encounters this man and gets in the boat and leaves. I, I, uh, saving this man from sin and Satan and, and of course saving him onto God's mission. This is what he's done for all of us. He not only saves us from sin, he saves us into a mission. And I think Jesus came especially for this man, specifically for this man. I, I wonder if he said to the disciples, hey, let's pull up to shore near this cemetery. There's a missionary I need to send. And all of a sudden a naked man comes running out of the tombs. And Jesus says, oh, here he is. And, and, and down he comes. I mean, this is nothing than a commissioning ceremony. This, by the way, is the first New Testament missionary. A former demoniac Gentile. Go home. Tell what I've done. He does, as we end our text in verse 39. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. The whole city sold out for Christ, stopping friend and stranger alike, telling them about Jesus. Tell the whole city. But you notice Jesus' instructions in verse 39 was to specifically to go home. I trust he made his way there. I trust excitement built in his heart as he drew closer. And if you'll allow me just to imagine for a moment, as I said, I wonder if he had a wife. I wonder if he had children. I wonder as he returned home, he thought about how long it's been since he's kissed his wife or held his kids. I wonder perhaps if his wife has been praying for him all this time. You know, dear Lord, will you please rescue my husband? I wonder if his kids will gather around the breakfast table and and pray, God, will you please send daddy home? Will you please help daddy and send him home? As he comes home, his heart begins to raise might see his little boy playing in the grass as he looks up and sees his daddy. And around the corner of the house emerges his daughter and she begins to call out, Daddy, Daddy! Mommy, Daddy's home! And standing there in the doorway is his wife with tears rolling down her cheeks. And he's now in a full sprint gathering his kids up in his arms, stopping before his wife. She asks perhaps, what's happened? How can this be? As he wipes the tears from his wife's eyes, looking her at her and then his children, he says, I met a man named Jesus. And he is the son of the Most High God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. How many times must he have told a story like that? How many times must he have shared so won by Christ that he couldn't help but speak? You too have a story, don't you? God has worked in your life, has he not? It's a different story, at least the details are different, but the fundamentals are the same. In fact, I would suggest to you, just as Jesus sent this man, he has sent you. John 20 and verse 21, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. Christians, will you embrace the mission that God has given you? You notice, by the way, in order to do so, you don't have to travel far. You don't have to go to Ghana or Eagle Butte to do this. This man was simply sent home. I believe you have the relationships that you have because God wants you to be a witness to him. He wants you to go and tell and set the captives free. 
I believe your testimony must therefore invade your homes and your workplaces and your friends. Maybe this week there's a phone call you can make. Maybe there's someone you could have over for dinner. Maybe there's a letter that you can write clearly spelling out what God has done for you and commending him to those who would do well to receive him. What has he done for you? You know what he's done for all of us. I think this passage alludes to it. Our enemy is real and sin is terrible and it will destroy you and Jesus has come to save you. Jesus alone can free you. In fact, there is nothing that He cannot free you from. There is no one that He cannot save. There is no one that He cannot liberate or restore. You can be freed. In fact, I think this, this passage even hints at how it's going to take place. You wonder, well, how can he free me? Well, you notice that this man, he was once naked, he was crying out, he was bleeding, and he was living in the tombs. When we finish this book, you know how we will find Jesus? Well, friends, we'll find him naked, will we not? And we'll find him bleeding. We will find him crying out. And eventually we will find him being driven to the tombs. See, Jesus has taken this man's place. He deals with sin and evil not by striking it with a sword, but by being struck with a sword. By taking the punishment upon himself for all that I have done and he has done and all you have done. He has borne the wrath of God that you and I might be freed from it forever, adopted into his family. Why would anyone ever resist him. Why would anyone say, no, I will choose my own way even though it leads to an eternity in torment rather than the loving embrace of the God who has made me and died for me? My friends, you may come today. Come right now. You may call out to Him, Lord God, I surrender. I surrender. I believe in Christ. Save me. In fact, I I would love to celebrate that with you. I, I can think of no more fitting way to end our time today than just you and I, brothers and sisters in Christ, so united by the blood of Christ to rejoice in His work on the cross through this supper meal that's prepared before me. I do invite all Christians here in a moment to partake of this meal. I would ask those of you who have yet to surrender your life to Christ as the elements are passed by that you would not take the bread And the cup, I I ask this not to be rude to you. I ask this only to be faithful to the Bible, which Scripture clearly teaches that this is a meal for Christians. In fact, as is our custom and as the Scripture instructs, I do want to give you, my brothers and sisters, an opportunity to pray to the Lord and prepare your hearts for this meal. For the Bible says, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. You see, this is not a meal for perfect people. This is a meal celebrating grace for sinners. So we are not turning away sinners. We are inviting sinners to this meal. But this is also not a meal just to take casually and haphazardly. It is a meal to come to repenting of the sin that God has revealed in our hearts that we might take it in a manner that is worthy of the sacrifice that has been offered for us. And so will you now pray, Christian, silently, speaking to the Lord about any sin that you might turn over to Him, that you might come with a repentant heart. Let us pray together.